There we go. All right, that'll help. Can I know God's will for my life? My life. That's the big question this week that we've looked at. A lot of the questions that we've addressed so far have been sometimes theoretical in nature. How could God allow evil and suffering? Uh, Sometimes they've been very personal as well. This one to me is, I think this is one that we've all asked uh, every time we pray uh, for anything. Every time we're uncertain, every time we want to know something, can I know God's will for my life? And in asking that question as a congregation, we should be aware of there are some assumptions in that question. One is we assume that we know what God's will, air quotes, we assume that we know what God's will means. And a lot of times we have wrong notions of what God's will means. And I want to look at three of them because I, I grew up in the church and, and I've been doing ministry in some form or another for probably the past uh, 10 years or so. And there's so many misconceptions and ideas that people have about God's will that they sort of come from the Bible, but not really, hopefully, as we're going to see. And so I want to look at a few of those. But before we start, let me pray. God, it's an awesome responsibility to share your word, to, to seek to convey something to the people here today that you would have them here. And I pray that the words of my mouth uh, are your words. And I pray that if the words of my mouth aren't yours, that they would immediately be forgotten. Lord, thank you for bringing us together today. Thank you for that incredible time of worship. Thank you for that time of corporate prayer. And God, I pray that you would enlighten our minds now as we seek your face. Amen. Misconceptions about God's will. First one that I hear a lot. I'm going to go ahead and apologize uh, (laughs) because I may say a verse that you're very familiar with and and that you love dearly, and I do too. I just want to make sure we love it dearly for what it really means and and not what we think it means. Uh, The first misconception is what I call the individual blueprint idea. And using my CIA ninja skills, I stole the blueprints for the new building over there (laughs) from Brad's office. And these things, these are technical. These are so technical. You know, if something's off by like a foot, then they've got to redesign a whole big chunk of the building. It's insane. If one little door, these little half moons, if that doesn't swing open right, then they have to redesign the whole wall. Uh, It's got all these markings, and it's not blue, um, so I don't know if it's a blueprint, but it's (laughs) decimal points. I was an art major in undergrad, so I don't do decimals. Uh, This is, is, wow, is this what God, when he looks at our life, and he says, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, is is this what, does he have one of these for each of us? If God has an individual blueprint for our life, then that means that we've got to figure out every little decimal point and got to go with it. You know, Lord, um, it says right here that I am supposed to drink Coke today instead of Pepsi. So I'll be sure to do that. And I have to put on my left shoe first. And then I have to take this job. And that's, that's so not what the Bible says. Um, it, that's not freedom. But this idea that people have of the blueprint that God has a blueprint for their life specifically, time to this millisecond, and, and we've got to figure it out. Lord, show me what you've already prepared to do. And, and, and these things sound really good, and they're based on the Scripture. Yeah, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Jeremiah 29, 11. Now that verse, I'm going to just get rid of that. 
the verse Jeremiah in Jeremiah 29, 11, that's a beautiful verse. And it's been the memory verse of countless people. And, and I've watched as some of you, my brothers and sisters, as you join the church, that's your verse because it means so much to you. And what I want to say is I think that verse means so much more than what we commonly assume. And we're going to look at that after we look at these next two misconceptions. Number two, the first is the individual blueprint. The second misconception I think people have about God's will is what I call the tightrope. And that's pretty scary looking. I mean, I don't think that's a real picture. I hope not. But uh, that's a guy walking a tightrope over a crowded city street. And some people think that that's what God's will is like. They think that we have to walk by faith each step I take. I, we just sang that. They think that, that, that it's a, this narrow, we have to balance. And we're, they, they may be justified. People may be justified in thinking that. Because the Bible, uh, in Proverbs, we read, Keep straight the path of your feet, and all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. Keep straight. Do not swerve. You get the idea of a tightrope. Oh, don't go to the right or to the left. If I do, I'm spiritually dead. Is that God's will for our life? We'll look at that one in a minute, too. The third one that I want to look at is what I call the bullseye idea of God's will. And the bullseye is probably the one that's closest to the truth of all of these misconceptions. But there's, there's still, it's not quite it. I like to play darts. Anybody like playing darts? It's fun. I, I can't have one at my house. My roommate owns the place, and there'd be holes all over the wall because I'm not good at it. But I like to play. And I don't think I've ever hit the bullseye. Well, once I've hit a bullseye. But a lot of people look at God's will, and they, it's like a dart board, right? If you're playing darts and you throw the dart, if you don't hit the bullseye but you still hit the board, you get a few points. You know, you maybe get five, you maybe get double 20s, you maybe get something, but you get some points. But your, your goal is to hit the, the center, the direct bullseye. That's your goal. And so a lot of people, based on a verse that I'm about to read, think that that's God's will. Romans 12, 2. Very famous verse. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good pleasing, and perfect will. So you read this verse and say, okay, God's got a good will, and that'd be like the outer perimeter of the bullseye, and then he has a pleasing will, which is, you know, it's better, double score, but then he's got his perfect will. And I, I want to find that perfect will because what if when I'm seeking the Lord on a decision, I choose his good will, but not his perfect will. Does that mean that I live the rest of my life with a spouse that's not the perfect person that he has picked for me, but somebody that he said, okay, you know, she'll do, he'll do. Is that the idea? If I don't take the job that's in his perfect will, I'm going to miss out for all eternity on what I could have had because I just chose his good will. And so there's, this, there's layers that people add based on, on this passage. I don't think that's right, though. Um, I don't not think it. I know it's not right. Because we're going to look at some of the problems with these views. I'm your discipleship pastor. You've graciously hired a 26-year-old young kid, fresh off, not even out of seminary. I've still got two classes left. And my job here at the church, one of them, is to equip everyone in here to be able to devour God's Word. 
And my one passion, if you ask anyone on staff or anybody that knows me, is that when we go to wield the sword, we don't cut our own heads off. When we go to take God's word and apply it to our lives and read it and understand it, that we know what we're doing, that we know how to handle it. And the number one problem in North American Christianity of the 21st century is we don't know how to handle God's word because we don't know one principle and that is what is the context of this passage. 99.9% of all problems in the church that have somewhat of a basis in scripture, it's from people not paying attention to the context of what they're teaching. There's an idea in the Bible that the Bible condones everything it reports. You just, oh, well, the Bible says, you know, don't eat a goat in its mother's milk. Well, that's the truth. Don't do it. Uh, the Bible says this girl drove a tent peg through a guy's head. Wow. Where's the tent peg? Let me, let me start doing that. There's this idea of this one. We just open up the Bible randomly without taking in the mind what is the context? Who wrote the passage? What were they trying to say? The question to ask, and especially as we look at big issues, because we're not preaching from just one passage today, so we can't, like Talbot said, these series come from many different places in Scripture. There's over 40 different authors that wrote the Bible under the inspiration of God. 66 books, 1,500 years from when it, the first letter was written down in Genesis until the last letter was written in Revelation. I think I did that backwards. First letter, last letter. And we, we have to take into account that this wasn't written yesterday. And it's not a newspaper or a how-to magazine or stereo instructions. And so when you're looking at the context, the question to ask is, is what this is saying narrative or normative? And what I mean by that is, what this, is, is this something that the Bible is just presenting, recording, describing? Or is this something the Bible is teaching, affirming, and saying this should be the norm? Thou shalt not murder. That's pretty cut and dry. Uh, stories we read about the judges and, and David and people like that going through in these military battles, that's narrative. And we can't apply one to the other willy-nilly. We have to understand. So how does this apply at all? Why am I going off on this tangent? Because the Jeremiah passage, Jeremiah chapter 29, just a brief summary because I want you to read it for yourselves at some point. But the, Jeremiah was writing a letter to a group of people. Jeremiah was a Hebrew. He was in Israel. And these people, Babylon, this nation had come in and they had taken some people away from Jerusalem. There had been some battles. And... They take some of the people from Jerusalem and took them back to Babylon and took them captive. And so the people in Babylon, they're sitting over there, and it's a couple hundred miles away, separated by a vast desert, and they're wondering, Israel's our home. Jerusalem's the holy city. How do we get back there? Well, in Babylon, there are these prophets, air quotes again, there's these prophets among the people of Israel that are saying things like, rise up. You guys that are back in Jerusalem, we're, coming, we're going to come back and we're going to help you throw the Babylonians away. We've got to rise up and we've got to break the yoke. We've got to claim the victory of God and we've got to fight back. And they were saying all these things to get the people all inspired. Like, yeah, we've got to get back to Jerusalem and help our brothers and destroy these godless pagans that have taken us, and, and taken us captive and you know, destroyed our land. And, and Jeremiah comes along and he's, God says, give the people this letter. And chapter 29 is a letter that was written to the people by Jeremiah. And what he tells them blows their minds 
Because Jeremiah tells the people, you know what God wants you to do? He doesn't want you to rise up and throw off the Babylonian yoke and, and proclaim victory. He wants you to stay where you are. He wants you to plant gardens, build houses, take wives for your sons, start families, because you're going to be here for 70 years. Why are you going to be here for 70 years? Because that's my will for you as a nation, because you're being punished for your nation's sins. And so, you, so God's saying, but you know what? That's where we come to this verse. I know the plans I have for you, though. Stay put. Don't try to fight off. If you, go, if you try to fight the Babylonians and go back, you're going to get slaughtered with the rest of them, which happened in 583 B.C., 538 B.C., 5-something B.C. And God's saying, don't try to do that. I know the plans I have for you, and they're plans for good, plans to prosper you, not to destroy you. And if you don't follow that plan that my servant Jeremiah has told you, then you will be wiped out. The context of the passage God's not talking about an individual blueprint for someone's life. He's talking about the redemptive purpose of his entire nation of people. And he's trying to protect them from something that they think is good. So that's, that's just an example of how when you read scripture, when you come to passages in the prophets or in the history books or even in the New Testament, what's the background? What's God saying? Another concept in scripture that we have to grasp is the audience of each book. We have to know the context, and part of that is knowing the audience. Specifically, is it we or is it me? Overwhelmingly in the Bible, every time... We, most of us, English is our primary language, and we don't have a difference. Well, we do in the South. We say y'all, if we mean plural you. But there's, in the English language and in your Bible, whenever you see the word you, probably nine times out of ten, that is a plural you. You. A corporate sense. Because the Bible, the, the idea, our, our North American sense of individualism, you know, it's just me against the world, it's just me and Jesus, we're going to do this, we're going to, that is so far into scripture. The Bible doesn't even begin to think in those contexts because God from the very beginning created us for community, not individuality. And we have to strip away that idol that we're bombarded with every day, that our individuality is what matters, our right for this, our right to that, our, it's just be yourself and forget, no. God wants us to be in community. And that doesn't mean we all become, you know, a collective of cyborgs or something that's uh, obey the community. And it's nothing like that. God has a, he, he, he keeps our individuality intact. But we're to live in community. And so every time in Scripture, we have to, add, we have to get the idea that it's, it's we, not me. I know the plans I have for you. Plural. Not you specific, James Michael. You. No. You. So we're kind of stuck um, because the, the passages that people draw their ideas about God's will don't really seem to teach that. Jeremiah wasn't talking about an individual blueprint for an individual life, so that doesn't help us. Um, Romans, that passage where God's good, pleasing, and perfect will, those are three words that describe one thing. That's a Greek idiom of speech. And God's will is good, pleasing, and perfect. It's not three separate wills. That doesn't help us. And the tightrope idea, don't turn to the right or to the left. I'll save that one. We'll look at that one in a minute. That's a proverb. So what do we know? What do we know? Well, here's what we do know, because you came for an answer to the big question. We do know that God's will for our lives has already been revealed in Scripture. We don't have to guess God's will for our lives. We don't need a magic eight ball, magic God ball. We shake it, God, Coke or Pepsi. 
Mountain Dew, what? No, we don't, <laughs> we don't need that. We don't need a, a divining rod, a, one of the sticks that you follow along, a Ouija board. We don't need that. That's what, that's what God told the people not to do in the first place. He said, other people that don't know me try to do that. You don't need that. I've told you. I have told you what is good. There's a passage in Micah, a prophet named Micah in the 7th century, I think. And he said to Israel, they were complaining, God, what do you want from us? We want to we follow you, I guess. Sure, what do you want? And Micah says, he has showed you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Micah tells the people, he's already told you. Why are you, why are you still asking? He, from the beginning, from Genesis 1, and at least by the end of Deuteronomy, your five holy books, your Torah, your instruction, your guidance, your wisdom, he's already showed you what's good. Do justice. Love mercy and grace. And walk humbly with Yahweh your God. Duh, people. That's what he's saying. That's what Michael was saying to the people. Get it. He's already told you. Well, the problem for us, it was the same problem for Israel. They didn't want to read. They didn't want to read God's will in the Torah. Why? Because it's got laws and it's boring and it's long. These big heavy scrolls. You've got to go to a rabbi and he's got to unwind it. And then you have to, that's so hard. Who wants to do that? Uh, they couldn't imagine that we would have it so easy one day. But that's what Micah's saying is he's already told you. He's told you what his will for your life is. A lot of times uh, there, was a, there was an editorial in Christianity Today this past uh, month, and it spoke about how we're a culture, we're a, we're a cheating culture in general. It was talking about the rising uh, amount of cheating by students in school on their SATs and even Christians. And the, the person that wrote the editorial made the judgment. He said, you know, I think even in the church we try to do that. We take things, we take concepts from preachers and, and superstars within Christianity that are meant as milk for the immature or the unbelievers. Five easy steps to this. Seven ways for this. Forty days of this. Good things that people need to hear. But we make that the meat. We don't go farther than that. We have our one-hour devotional Bibles, and we read a passage a day and, and put it away and check it off the list. He said, no, you've got to go deep. You have to devour the gospel. You have to devour God's word. Man does not live by bread alone. We can't do calculus until we learn to add. I can't do calculus, period. But we can't do calculus <laughs> until we learn to add. If you don't know how to add, if you don't know how to subtract, Good luck trying to get involved in quantum mechanics or string theory or any of that. You've got to have the basics. Basic lessons are in here. So while we're trying to do calculus by figuring out, God, what do you want, which job do you want me to take? And what house do you want me to buy? God's saying, learn how to add first. And then let this be the guiding principle and you make the decision. We'll come back to that because what, we know something else about Scripture. We know that God's will for our lives involves knowing Jesus. Centers on knowing Jesus. John 6.40. This is, if you have a red letter Bible, this is in red. That means it's good and you want to listen. <laughs> John 
Jesus speaking. That's what the red letter means, for, if you didn't know that. Um, for my Father's will, there's the, the buzzword, for my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. That is verbatim from the mouth of Jesus. You want to know what my Father's will is? Is that everybody knows me. Because I'm the one who this whole show is about. And so that is God's will for your life. Figure out the job, the car, all of that in good timing, but first get the basics that I want everyone in the world to know me. We can't do calculus before we can add. We can't know God's will if we don't know God's Son. And if you don't know God's Son today, and I hope there are people in here that haven't met Jesus intimately and, and don't know what it's like to experience Him in their lives. I hope, I hope there are a number of you here today. And if you are, I'm so glad that you came. Don't leave here without making the introduction and meeting Jesus, because you'll never know God's will if you don't know His Son. One other thing. Two other things, actually. I shouldn't say that. Don't you hate when preachers... One more thing, and then there's eight points to go. Uh, another thing. God's will for our lives involves big-picture thinking. We, we, when we ask the question, God, what's your will for my life? I think a lot of times we're asking too narrow a question. I mean, if we're going to go to the God of the universe in prayer, let's ask Him some big questions, Right? Let's really ask him, God, what's your will for my life? And mean it. Big picture thinking. Ephesians. Paul shared this with the Ephesian church. He's describing what God has done to them, for them, and through them. And then he goes on, Paul goes on to say this to the Ephesian church. And he made known to us, meaning Christians, the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. In Christ. That's what we just heard. God's will, whatever it is, it's in Christ. So if you're not in Christ, you cannot know God's will. But he also describes it as a mystery. Mystery. I mean, Scooby-Doo is cool, but I don't want mystery when I see God's will. You know, I want to know. I don't want a mystery. Well, God says too bad. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment. What? We've got to wait for whatever God's will is? We've got to wait for that? Till the times have... Well, Paul, I want to know now God's will. I want to know which car to buy. Paul says it's on its way. To be put into the effect when the times have reached their fulfillment. And here's the kicker. Here's what it is to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. And that even is just, a, in, in Greek, it's an emphatic, like, Jesus. You know, it's like, right, Jesus is it. God wants to bring all things under the authority, the lordship, and the headship of Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus was the one that created it in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Through Him all things were made. Nothing has been made apart from Him. It's all about Jesus and bringing this universe back under his lordship. And we're asking what house to buy, what person to date, what car to drive. God's not saying don't ask those. He's saying first get the big picture. Know my word is revealed in scripture. Know my son who bled on the cross for you. And know where it's headed. This whole show. Know where it's headed.
finally, and I do mean finally on this point as far as what we do know, finally, we know absolutely certain that God's will for our lives is that we be holy. And this is the most important thing for us to know in the meantime, is that we be holy. I'll just let this speak for itself. I'm not going to belabor this point. Uh, 1 Thessalonians, Paul says this to the people. Listen to his words. Finally, brothers and sisters, the Greek word means both, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions he gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Here we go. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, set apart, different, holy. And then he gives an example that may make us squirm. That you should avoid sexual immorality. That each of you should learn to control his or her own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who don't know God. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he or she who rejects this instruction doesn't reject man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. I won't belabor the point. I'll just say this. If we want to know God's will, we have to be intimate with God. And if we are destroying our intimacy with God by cheapening it with giving it away to other people sexually, then you're not going to be hearing from God anytime soon. That's got to be taken out of the picture first. God's will. Sum it all up. God's will for our lives. How can I know God's will for our lives? I'll tell you. God's will is that we feed on Scripture. We walk with Him in holiness. We fall more and more in love with Jesus. And we help Him bring all creation back into His arms. That's God's will for your life. That's God's will for your life. Okay, let's go home. No, what about the details? You know, y'all didn't come to hear that. Those of you that are mature Christians, you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa that's, that's great, but I want to know the everyday stuff. I want to know what school to send my kids to. I want to know... Obviously, there's, there's gray area, and so I, I can't get away from here without doing that. You'll run me out of town. Here's the deal. What do we do? Do we ask for signs? People in the Bible ask for signs sometimes. Gideon put out a fleece and sheepskin, and there's this whole thing with dew and stuff. And other people got signs in dreams and visions. Or what about inner feelings? You know, do we try to get really quiet and listen for God's still, small voice? It's still small. It's too small for me to hear. Why? Because God doesn't always speak. That's not normative. It's narrative. When God gives signs to people, it's to confirm something that he has already spoken to them directly. And signs, anything can be a sign. Oh, I was praying about a job and I drove by a billboard for Kentucky Fried Chicken. God wants me to work at Kentucky Fried Chicken. Well, nine million other people drove by the Kentucky Fried Chicken billboard. They have a lot of employees. A sign can be anything because it's so subjective. It's inner feeling. They are so subjective. There's a place for them, but they are not where you start in making a decision. You allow God to confirm your decisions through those things, but the Bible has a better way to make a decision. It's called wisdom. The importance of biblical wisdom. God, God wants us to take responsibility for our decisions. And if we can say, well, I did this, because I felt the Lord leading me, who can argue with that? I can't tell if God was leading you or not, and so you're safe in doing that, and you've taken all of the responsibility away from making the decision. I'm not so sure God set it up that way all the time, um, because he gave a whole genre in the Bible of literature called wisdom literature. The book of Proverbs is the biggest example. 
We read the proverb earlier, don't swear to the right or to the left, and, and proverbs are little Hebrew word puzzles. And they, they're meant to be pondered, they're short so you can remember them, and they're meant to be thought about and wondered over and worked on until God says, aha, uh-huh, see, see what I'm saying? And, and you're, I get it, I get it. I mean, why else would there be a book in the Bible where one verse that says, answer a fool according to his folly, and you'll be a fool like him. And the next verse says, don't answer a fool according to his folly, or else he'll be wise. There's two separate things right next to each other in the book of Proverbs. Your homework is to go find it if you want to. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> but Proverbs are filled with all these little enigmas, these, these, these sayings that you're like, wait, that, is that true all the time? How does that work? And they're meant to be chewed on and digested. And that, do not turn to the right or to the left. What is the last sentence that it said, if you can remember? It's on your outline, I believe. Ooh, maybe not. I didn't check. What the last sentence, what it says is, be sure to keep your foot from evil. Not be sure to pick the right Mitsubishi. Be sure to keep your foot from evil. And the implication is that God will make level your paths. That sounds kind of scary, that we have to actually use our own wisdom to figure out God's will. And so God built in a contingency. A, a relax, it's okay. He did it in, in the book of Proverbs. He said, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In, him, in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. And that lean not on your own understanding, that doesn't mean you check your brains at the door and go, oh, I think I should drink water today, but I feel like the Holy Spirit's telling me not to, so, and then you die. That's not God's will. God's will is, he, what he's saying is, don't rely on your own understanding as your primary means of making the decision. Trust in the Lord. Lean on me. That's where your wisdom comes from. This verse, I love it. Make, he will make your path straight. That word, make straight, your path in Hebrew is yashar. And it's a Hebrew word. It means to direct, to lead straight along. And it was often used to describe the way aqueducts directed water. You know, like there's water in this city. This city doesn't have any springs. So in the ancient world, they built these big aqueducts that the water would flow through, like these raised ditches. And that, those, those aqueducts yashard the water to its destination. And there's a sense in that making a path straight that God will guide you. Just jump in the ditch. Take off with the stream. Jump into his will. Jump into his, what you know is morally right from reading God's word and then go and let him carry you along because if you're trusting him, he's going to do it. And water sloshes around in an aqueduct and it, there's, there's some zigging and some zagging but you're still in his will. Trust in him. Last thing, how do we get wisdom? Sounds great. How do I get in the aqueduct? Well, a guy named James told us how to do that. He said, if any of you lacks wisdom, this thing we're talking about to find out God's will for your life, uh, he should ask God. That would be a good person to ask. Ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. If you want to make a wise decision, instead of praying, maybe try this. Instead of praying, say, God, make this decision for me. How about next time try, God, allow me to make a wise decision. And then trust that he'll do it. You know, like trust that sometimes what you want and what God wants are the same thing. And you don't have to be afraid of that, but seek him in prayer and humility. Knowing God's will, sum it all up, knowing God's will involves freely making wise choices within the boundaries of God's moral will Freely making wise choices as long as we're in the boundary of his moral will. If you're in sin, 
that's got to be dealt with first. Then you start asking God, what's your will? Because you already know his will for your, your life is to be holy. So you take care of that by repentance and care and saying, Lord, cleanse me. And then we can start seeking his will. It's not that God can't speak apart from the Bible. But if, if my VCR doesn't work, VCR, so if my DVD player doesn't work, um, and I'm, I get all frantic, probably the first thing that I should not do is call the designer and the engineer and say, hey, my DVD player's not working, come fix it. Because what he'll probably tell me is, when you bought it, it came with a manual, Right? Why don't, you, why don't you check the manual first? And then if you can't figure it out, then give me a call. And a lot of times God wants us to do that first. He wouldn't have gone to the trouble to make sure that this was written over 1,500 years by 40 different authors on three different continents, 66 books. He wouldn't have gone to that trouble if he didn't want us reading it. And then if there's something where there's a gray area, or that, then you take it to the Lord in prayer and you find out from other Christians around you, what's the wise thing to do? That's how God works. We just need to relax. And that's the primary thing that I want to get across to us as a good church. Just relax. God's not a blueprint. God's will isn't a tightrope. God's not a dartboard. He's our Father. That's the metaphor that God chose to describe Himself as our Father. I want to close by reading this passage. This is by a book. This is from a book by a pastor named Kyle Lake on knowing God's will. He says this about speaking God's Father. There is a progression that takes place among parents in their relationship with their kids. Parents have an overarching concern, not just that their kids make good decisions in life, but more so that their kids will develop and mature in the process. That's why there are many times in life when parents will see their child heading down a dead-end road, but the parents won't always intervene. Why? Because the parents are psychotic and secretly want their child to fail? No. Because the parents are allowing their son or daughter to find out for him or herself that this road is in fact a dead-end road and hopefully mature in the process. So what does the metaphor of fatherhood have to say to us about understanding God's will? Well, initially it helps us reframe the issue of God's will from God's perspective rather than from ours. And often God's primary concerns aren't our primary concerns. He gives this conversation I'll close with this conversation, a fictional conversation between a, a father and, and his son. A guy named Brian McLaren wrote this, and, and he uses it in this book. Brian McLaren, he said, I have four kids, including a son in college. He's a good young man. Imagine he calls me on the phone and says, Dad, what's your will for my major in college? I'd say, son, I've raised you to this point in your life so that you can make that decision. Yeah, Dad, but I want to do your will, not my own will. So please tell me, what major to choose? Son, I'll say, I'll be glad to help you think this through. For example, we can talk about how much you hate history and calculus and how much you love writing and business. I think I can help you eliminate some options, but I really want you to decide this. Dad, don't you love me? What if I make a mistake? I just want to do your will. But son, I'll reply, it's my will for you to make this decision. Again, I'm glad to talk with you and help you think it through, but my will is for you to grow up, be a man, and make a life for yourself by making decisions, hard decisions like this one. And believe me, whatever happens, whether you major in business or art or physics, whether it goes well or not, I'll be with you. You can count on that, no matter what. The point is that he lives with my guidance, he says about his son. The point is he lives with my guidance, but not my domination, because he's my son, not my lawnmower. 
And if we can start thinking about our relationship with God as not one of a little vessel, little robot that God pilots around, but actually sons and daughters, his will will become remarkably more clear. Let's pray. God, I pray that you will help us be wise as a community. Lord, we are a community of believers. We are the body of Christ that happens to be located at the corner of Moss and Tryon. We're good shepherd. We're a family, Lord. Let us keep that in mind. Your purposes are bigger than ours. God, show us those purposes. And for those day-to-day decisions that we wonder over, let us find comfort in the fact that you're with us. You're helping us. You're not going to give us the answer unless it's something that we can't possibly handle, but you're with us. You want us to wrestle with it. Lord, help us to do it wisely. Help us to do it in humility and help us to do it by seeking you through prayer. And God, help us fall in love with your word. Lord, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.